Bible, if you'll open that, please, to 1 John chapter 3. And we're returning to the last few verses in this third chapter. And we are considering the subject, Condemned or Convinced. The title comes from verses 20 and 21. And I might well have considered titling the message, Condemned or Confident, instead. Because either one of those conveys the meaning that in order for a person to be assured of their salvation... They must be convinced and confident in the knowledge of God's Word and of the evidence of the fruits of regeneration in their lives. Now, there are many times when we fail God and we fall back into sin. And when that happens, our heart condemns us. And the Scripture tells us that God is greater than our heart. And that's a very important point in this particular part of Scripture, and a very controversial one. So let's uh, read the Scriptures this evening. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll start with verse number 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit, which he hath given us. The subject that we've been on for several weeks now is the the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And in one way or another, we have touched on this doctrine and have been dealing with it all the way back since, well, the month of March of last year, all the way up to last Wednesday evening. In some way or another, we've been touching on the doctrine of assurance because that is the main theme of 1 John. Uh, This is a letter that was written in order to help Christians that were in the midst of doctrinal attacks to help them to distinguish between false Christians and true ones. And so 1 John begins with a very strong counterattack against those that deny the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And for Christians to be assured of their salvation, they need to, to know those doctrines And the reason there are so many people that are assured of salvation when they don't have it is because their assurance has been born in heresy. And so this letter was written to divide the false from the true and to help people with correct doctrine and help them to understand that the correct doctrine will produce the evidence of Christianity in their lives. Now here, in this part of chapter 3, we're talking about the consequences of knowing the truth. The previous messages are more towards the proofs of assurance, but now we're looking at the consequences that we receive by knowing that our hearts are assured. Now, just briefly, though, we encounter a difficulty with the meaning of verse number 20, and we've spent quite a bit of time looking into this. Verse number 20 sets the tone for the rest of the passage. John says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So there's controversy in the passage. And and the question here is, is John giving comfort to those that have sinned and now they're down on themselves? Is he telling them that they can rest assured that God knows their commitment that he's made, that they've made to him, and, and God sees that despite the failures that are in their lives? 
Or the other side of this looks at it that John is pushing more towards more self-examination and that the judgment of God is in view here and God's judgment of our sin is greater than our own judgment of it. And if that's the meaning, then uh, John intends not to let us get up off the floor when we've sinned against God and make a very easy evaluation of our faith. Now, one side of that is very comforting, and the other side of it's fearful. And there are good men that stand on both sides of this question, and that's because the Greek text that underlies this is not uh, clear enough to actually make a decision on that, and so we really have to make a determination based upon how we feel that the Scriptures ought to be interpreted. Uh, Both of those sides have truth in them, so you're not going to go wrong as far as the truth is concerned whether you pick one side or the other. Uh, The first John supports either one of those views. But I'm inclined to believe that the passage is comforting for Christians, that when we sin and when we fail and we know that we have, we can still look to our standing in Christ in all of those failures. If we can go back to verses 7 through 10 in this third chapter and find out that, that the habit of our lives is that we do not want to live in sin and that we're striving to live without it, then we can take comfort in this, that although we do sometimes fail, that we are still the children of God. The second part of this that we looked into was the condemnation of the heart. Our hearts will condemn us. That is inevitable. I mean, there's no question about it. If you are a person who has really been changed Uh, been regenerated, you have salvation in Christ, when you sin, your heart will always rise to condemn you. And the Bible says here that God is greater than our heart. He's given us Christ's righteousness. righteousness. We are justified uh, from our sins. And so when we stand in God's courtroom, we're free from the condemnation of sin. Thirdly, we looked at the conscience of a Christian And so we discuss the role that the conscience plays in the conviction of sin. The conscience is a warning device so that when we act wrongly, it blows the whistles and rings the bells and lets us know that we have sinned. And when we act righteously, the conscience is also there to soothe and and quiet us. And the conscience has the ability to warn us. But the ability to warn us only goes as far as the conscience is trained. It has to be trained correctly. A lost person has an untrained conscience. Now, he knows the difference between right and wrong. We looked at that in Romans chapter 2 last week. Uh, we, We know the difference between right and wrong. A lost person does, but what he doesn't have is the sensibility that he sinned against a holy God. And so there are times when he may act morally and he may feel that he's righteous, but it doesn't mean that he's actually righteous towards God because feelings are never the barometer. The facts, what you have believed, that's always the determiner. But those that are redeemed do have a conscience that's activated and we understand the consequences of sin. And a real, really truly saved person is not going to rest until fellowship with God has been restored. And that means we repent of those sins. Now, the conscience reacts according to its training. And so the more we know about the objective reality of our faith, then the more that our conscience is going to be uh, active in warning us against sin, more sensible to sin in our lives. And that is the reason, one of the many reasons that you need to come to church. It's one of the reasons why you need to read the Scriptures. It's why you need to listen closely and then consider everything that you've heard because all of that will make your conscience more sensitive towards sin. 
So that covers what we've talked about previously. Now we want to move on into some more discussion of the consequences of assurance. Now the fourth thing that I'd like to bring to you tonight is the comfort of God's grace. The comfort of God's grace. Now when we talk about grace, where is the place that we usually go? Well, I think usually we would go to the Apostle Paul. He's often referred to as the Apostle of Grace. And so in the salutation of his letters, in the conclusion of his letters, in the middle of his letters, he speaks about grace over and over and over again. For instance, when he began the book of Romans, he says there, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Corinthian letter, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Galatian letter, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all of us are familiar for sure with what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And you follow the Apostle Paul through his writings, and you find that he says that we are selected by grace. That happened before time, before the foundation of the world. God chose us. It says, he says that God has redeemed us by grace. That's what happens in time. That's what verse uh, 8 in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. We are saved by grace. And all of that's just a really small sampling of the many times that Paul talks on the subject of grace. But probably the most important for our discussion here in 1 John is the many teachings that Paul has on the sustaining grace of God. He has that great passage in Ephesians where he speaks about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us in Romans that God has overcome all obstacles that could possibly cause us to lose our salvation. So grace never strays very far from his mind. And the idea the Apostle Paul brings to us is that God's grace is untiring. God never runs out of grace for his children. And how important is that? Well, it's important enough that when your heart condemns you, God's grace is greater than your heart. And so the encouragement that we have in these times when we fail God is that we go back to that knowledge that we have of how great God's grace is. The touchstone of assurance is the greatness of God's grace. And we know that even though God has seen the very worst in us, he still knows what he purchased. He knows how costly that the payment was. He knows that he's fully satisfied in what his grace accomplished in our lives. And so God is not going to let you down. No matter how many times your heart condemns you, no matter how many times you let yourself down, there's always comfort in this, in God's grace. And I hope you understand that when we do things, like sometimes during the year, usually about December, January, or July and and, uh, June and July, we bring people up before the church for church discipline. I mean, if we have some people that, that need to be uh, members of the church that need to be disciplined, that we bring them up at that time. And I hope that you understand, whenever we do things like that, that we never intend to dismiss an offending member with a thought, you are never going to be able to get back into this church again. I mean, just the other day, I had to deal with someone that said, I can't come back to church. Uh, I, I've done so much wrong. There, there's just so much embarrassment. I don't know how I could even face the people again. And you know my answer to that? 
If God has saved your soul and God has forgiven you of your sins, what could you possibly do against us that we couldn't forgive you for? I mean, the the happiest people to see a person who's gone away from the church and walked wayward to the Lord and done something they shouldn't do, the happiest people to see that person restored are the people of God's church. I mean, there's nobody that loves it more when somebody comes back. And that's the character of the church. That's what God expects from us. And if you attend a church where they wouldn't take you back if you repented of your sin, then you don't need to be a member of that church anyway because those aren't true Christians. Because that's the character of Christians. So as I say, there's no one happier to see a wayward Christian return than God's people. And the reason we do is because we appreciate God's grace. We appreciate how grace, good grace is. And so we're always going to take a back seat to God's grace. And then I have some people that have told me before, I'd really like to become a member of the church, but I'm too shy to stand up in front of the people. I'm too shy to go into the baptistry and get baptized. And I always respond to that, you have no reason to be embarrassed. There is nobody happier than this. When we see somebody who has been saved by God's grace, I mean, we know what's happened to us, and we want to see that happen to everybody else. So we're saved by grace. We know what God's grace has done for us. We know what it continues to do for us. And so the point of that is, when your heart rises up against you, and Satan tells you that you're low down, that you're undeserving, that you are a miserable failure to God, That's when you say with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we don't let others condemn us. We don't condemn ourselves. We know how God's grace has worked in us. And John is agreeable to everything that Paul says, everything I've just said here. And he uses another word to convey that. He uses the word confidence. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now, where do we get this confidence? I mean, why should we have such confidence? Well, this is the next part, and that is that our confidence is predicated upon relationship. We have the confidence of relationship. When we trust Christ, we become the sons of God. And that is so striking that it's verified by God giving us an inheritance. Now, I'm not going to receive an inheritance from somebody that I'm not related to. I'd like to, but I probably won't. But but God gives us an inheritance because we have a relationship with him. A moment ago, I spoke about the sealing of the Spirit that we find in Ephesians 1.14, and Paul called it there the earnest of our inheritance. And he meant that the Holy Spirit himself is the pledge. He's the guarantee that we're going to receive our inheritance. What do we inherit? Well, I hope you haven't missed all those Sunday nights talking about the kingdom of God because that's what the Bible says that we inherit. We inherit God's kingdom. Hebrews says in nine, Hebrews 9.15, that is our eternal inheritance. Our inheritance is the kingdom and everything that's in that kingdom. And so our relationship with God changes what we were before. We're brought out of sin, and that's why Paul says that if you are somebody who continues to live in sin, you don't have an inheritance. This is what he said in Ephesians 5, verse 5. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So we are sons of God, and that is verified by the inheritance. Now, here's my point. The relationship that we have with God the Father says that we are in good standing with him. And that's just further proof that not everyone is automatically a child of God. 
And some people would have you believe that. We're all children of God, they say. We're all God's creatures. And they got the second part of that right. When you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted him for salvation, that's all you are to God. You're just one of his creatures. You're You're not a child. You're not a son. You have no inheritance with God. But when you come by faith, receiving Christ, you become a child of God, then you're in good standing with him. And that relationship is never going to change. And so when you sin and your heart condemns, you come to God not as a condemned criminal. You don't come accused of a crime. You come before God always in the position as a son. Now we notice here that John moves the discussion into the right approach to God in prayer. Now, that's in verse number 22, and we'll get there in a moment. But I want you to notice here how verse number 21 relates to that. He says, we have confidence toward God. And you know how the Bible says that we can express that confidence toward God? We express it in a certain way in prayer. There's a certain way that we go to God. We don't go to God cowering in fear. We don't go to God afraid he's going to beat us down because of our sin, but we come boldly, the word of God says, to the throne of grace. In Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Boldly to the throne of grace. In Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And Paul put it another way in Ephesians chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. So we have assurance, we have that boldness, we have that confidence, and it comes from the relationship that we have with God. So we have access to God. The Bible says you have access to God through Jesus Christ. And he would no more refuse us than he would Christ. When we come into the presence of God, he doesn't see the faults. He's not concerned with that. He knows that Christ already died for the faults. And so we come into the presence of God with the same boldness that Jesus Christ himself can come into the presence of the Father. Now that's an interesting point, I think, concerning this, is that God the Father said about his Son, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why did God say that about him? It's because Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. Everything that he was supposed to do, everything the Father told him to do, he gladly took that, and so God was pleased with him. And when we are justified, and we have received the righteousness of Christ, there is a sense in which God is as pleased with us as he is with his own Son. And that's because his righteousness stands in the place of our failed attempts at righteousness. And so John says, don't let your heart get out of hand over this. Don't let it rule you because God is greater than your heart. And so you have that confidence. The relationship has been established. You can't fall out of the relationship any more than God could even reject Christ. That's what assurance is really about. Your hope is anchored in Christ, and we are assured because Christ cannot fail. Now there is where you find really the essence of salvation. A person who believes that salvation is never assured, or a person who thinks that salvation could be lost, 
is somebody who's never really understood what happens when a person is justified by faith in Christ. They just don't understand what it means. Our confidence is never in our ability. We could never go into the presence of God based upon anything that we have done. We can only go there based upon the work that Christ has done. Now, let's, let's go here to the 22nd verse. And this is a great verse about prayer. And our confidence in prayer is based upon the relationship, but there's something very important that needs to be considered with verse number 22, and that is the conditional requirement of commandments. Verse 22 says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, there is a very perplexing verse to some people. What does that mean? And some would have us think that keeping of commandments is the meritorious cause of God's disposition towards us. But if we look at the arguments that John's already made, then we see that he continually speaks about keeping of commandments not as a meritorious cause, but as the fruits of our salvation. A person keeps the commandments as evidence of his salvation. And, that, and that's why we keep talking about all these different kinds of tests. Tests of true Christianity. They're found in the right response to this test of doctrine that he's given. And to this test of love that he says we must have. And then once again, coming back to it one more time right here, the test of keeping God's commandments. So it's not the meritorious cause of God's disposition towards us. It's just simply the character of one who's really a believer. His confidence comes because he knows he keeps God's commandments. When the Pharisees questioned the blind man in John chapter 9, they claimed that Jesus could not be God because they said he is a sinner. In John 9, 24, then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And they meant Jesus is a sinner. And so if there's any glory that's going to be given for being healed from blindness, then the glory must go to God, not to Jesus. He's not God. He's a sinner. But the blind man turned their reasoning around on them and gave them a dose of their own medicine. And I don't think they would have said this next thing unless God had just zapped him with some wisdom. And he says in, in verse number 31, the blind man says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Now, when you think about that, would you think that Jesus is God because he keeps all of the commandments? Or he keeps the commandments because he's God? You see the point of that? 1 John 3.22 is a statement about the character of one who's been born again. He keeps God's commandments because he is born again, not in order to become born again. And so if we pass that test of keeping commandments, we have confidence that we have been born of God, and the Scripture says that God hears his children. 1 Peter 3 verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So who's left out of that? Who, who, who has no right to come in confidence before God? Who, who is not going to have their prayers heard by God? Well, it certainly would be a person that, that has never obeyed the most important commandment of all. The ones who don't hear are the ones who haven't obeyed the most commandment of all. We actually sang about that just a few minutes ago. Mark 12, verse 30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. 
And so if a person refuses Christ, if he's never trusted Christ, if that person thinks that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross is not important, that the remission of sins is not important, how can they love God? Christ is God. And so nobody's ever going to get around him. And if your heart condemns you when you're in that condition, not having trusted in Jesus Christ, then you don't have any confidence toward God. You shouldn't have. And this is what John says in the next verse, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. And so there you have the two great commandments expressed in one verse. Jesus said... Mark twelve thirty again, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And so rolled into those statements of 1 John three twenty two and 23 are all three tests that we've talked about in this epistle. The test of doctrine, That's concerning the deity of Christ, the test of obedience to commandments, and the test of love, love one another. You see how John just keeps getting back to that over and over again, keeps rolling back into those those tests, and, and he keeps intertwining this. It's all braided together. It's wrapped together. From every side that you look at this, there are these tests. And if you have any confidence towards God, if you expect to be heard by God, you have to be a Christian. You'd have to have all these things. And that's why, that's why I can't see how a person that claims to be a Christian could stand up in front of a crowd and pray a generic prayer that does not mention the name of Jesus Christ. And you hear it done. People come and they address God as the Creator. They address Him as the Almighty Father, whomever that you think God is. And they believe that they're going to be heard. But it's going to be heard without Christ. That person can't claim to be a Christian. I remember I had a friend once who was asked to give an invocation at a meeting, and the prayer started out something like this. God of land, God of the sea, God of all his creatures, and on and on and on and on, trying to be inoffensive, lest there would be somebody there who was a Muslim or a Hindu or, or a, a cat worshiper or a karma queen or anything else. Don't offend anybody. Well, you can't have any confidence to pray like that. You have to believe in the Lord your God. And and God, Jesus Christ, is God. That means him. And so if you love him and you keep his commandments and you love the brethren, then you know you'll be heard by God. Now, let me go on here to one more truth out of the, in, in this passage. It's another very important truth we find here. Number seven is the control of the Spirit. Verse number 24 says, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So how are we assured of salvation? The consequence of real salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, what you can never do, you could never fall back on your conscience alone. And, that, and that's what's meant by the heart in verses 20 and 21. You can't fall back on conscience alone. You can't fall back on your heart alone. That's not the indicator of salvation. You see, the heart, the conscience, that's never going to be able to move us into the right doctrine. It can't move us into the obedience of commandments. It can't cause us to have a selfless love that's talked about in this passage. The human heart is simply incapable of all those things. 
And so if you find that you do believe in Christ, that you do trust his word, that you do love others as yourself, that you do obey his commandments, it can be attributed to only one reason. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It can't come any other way. Now I want you to think a minute about the familiar passage in Galatians 5.22. And you might want to turn there and, and just so we can catch the reference here of what's going on. But Galatians 5.22, as you probably know, is a contrast between believers and unbelievers. And there's something that believers have that unbelievers don't have. What is that? It's the fruits of the Spirit. Believers have fruits of the Spirit. Unbelievers don't. Now, Paul says in Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. Now that sounds a whole lot like what we're studying in First John, doesn't it? True believers have put to death the works of the flesh. And if you want to know what works he's talking about, you just go right back up to verses 19, 19 through 21. And he says, those that do the things that are listed in those verses will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the former works that we lived in. But once we're saved, we now have the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So if you have separated yourself from the works of the flesh, and you now have the presence of the fruits of the Spirit in your life, what does that mean? Well, it could only mean one thing. The Spirit of God is in you. What could give you more assurance than that? To know that the Spirit of God is in you. And if the Spirit of God is in you, how can God ever refuse you? Do you see how John is building that assurance in us? You see those evidences? And the evidences, the, the fruits of the Spirit are there. That's evidence the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you think about this. How do you know the Holy Spirit's there? How do you ever know that? Holy Spirit's in, imperceptible to the senses. I mean, you don't, you don't get tingly feelings because you have the Holy Spirit. And you don't, uh, you don't get hot flashes. And you don't suddenly break out in the, in, the, in the double dream hands dance because you've got the Holy Spirit. Anybody know what that is? Oh, man, I can't believe nobody got that reference. Look it up on the Internet. Double dream hands dance, okay? And you'll enjoy that very, very much. Um, but anyway, John 3.8. John 3.8 tells us that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see the wind. You only see the effects of the wind. And the effect of the Holy Spirit, and the way that you know that he's present, is that when that wind blows of the Spirit in your life, the fruit starts falling off the tree. That's how you know the wind is blown. And the first fruit to fall is not even found here in Ephesians or Galatians 5.22. The first fruit to fall... We can find in our statement of faith, and the Bible teaches this, and I love this, this part of the statement of faith, like it all, but this says, We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind that is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. You know, that's a great statement that's made there. The Holy Spirit secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. 
You know what that is? People don't even recognize sometimes what that is. That's a statement of irresistible grace. When the Holy Spirit calls you, when he comes knocking on your door, when he starts blowing through you like the wind, then you voluntarily obey the gospel. That's what that statement means. And then the fruit starts falling. Now, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person's life, that the Holy Spirit has been there, is repentance and faith. Then comes the newness of life. You see, when the Holy Spirit has moved in like the wind, he regenerates, and the first fruits of regeneration are repentance and faith. And that's, as we see right here, is not the cause of regeneration. It's an effect of it. And then the newness of life that that statement speaks of is what we find there in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The newness of life are the other fruits of the Spirit. So when the wind blows, the Holy Spirit comes in, the, 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 the fruit starts falling off the tree. Love falls, and joy falls, and peace falls, and gentleness and goodness fall. Self-control falls. And that's when a person really starts to swell with confidence. You know that you aren't condemned. You're convinced that you are a Christian. And so there, the evidence of belief is in your hand. And you know, I am a card-carrying member of the kingdom of God. I have the fruits of his spirit. Folks, that's what this section is all about. This is what it comes down to. And I don't think that this is meant at all to be negative. I don't think it's a, a judgmental injunction against it, against us. I think what we find here is something that's comforting, it's hopeful, it's persuasion that we truly are the children of God. And another message we talked about this, that, that when you have that, that preaching about sin and that preaching about conviction, then you're going to have to have on the other side of that something to balance that out. If you didn't, you've got dead, depressed Christians. You've got Eeyore Christians. Walking around all the time, whoa, is me, the world is down on me, I'm down on myself, I can't even hardly get out of bed anymore. That's what you have if you don't have a counterbalance to it. And that's what I think this passage is. It's the counterbalance to our failures, the counterbalance to sin against God, the counterbalance against all of those times when we know that we haven't done what we should do. And when we are true Christians, we have to have some assurance to be found somewhere. So we go back, and we're kind of summing things up here now. We've talked over the past few weeks. We go back, and we look at, do we have that evidence in our lives? Have we felt convicted when the Holy Spirit, or when, or when we sinned against God? Do we feel that conviction that's there? Do we find those times that we have obeyed God's will, and we've seen God working in our life, and we've seen these fruits in Galatians 5.22? I'm studying for another message today. And I'm getting off my topic now. I'm, uh, <clears throat> I uh, didn't have this planned even talk tonight, but it's 10 minutes till 8, so I'm going to try to use a little bit more time up. So I'm going to preach to you the message for about a month from now. No, I'm just going to give you a little piece of that. I mean, I was looking at that today, talking about, uh, and, and we're going to get into the issue of lordship salvation when we get into chapter 4, get into the heresies that, that are taught and how you discern between different spirits. And I got into that thing about thinking about lordship salvation, and there are people who say that you could be a Christian without ever having any evidence. There's a, there's a, a Baptist preacher that was the editor of one of the big fundamental papers, and he, and he said that, that a disciple is not the same thing as being a Christian. I mean, you can be a Christian without being a disciple of Christ. I mean, could you ever imagine such a thing? That Jesus was talking to people and, and he said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. 
It's a preview of the sermon, so you're going to get again. He said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And the guy says, well, I don't think so. I think that I would rather go home and bury my dad. And, and one says, I think that I would, you know, I, I need to go uh, take care of some family first, whatever, those other things that, that, that they said. You remember that in, in the book of Matthew. And can you imagine that Jesus said with him, well, okay, uh, you can go to heaven too. We're going to take the path of great resistance. We're going to take the path where we have to fight for every inch that we get. We're going to take the path where we're going to be persecuted. And we're going to take the path where people are going to hate us. And we're going to take the path where we appear before kings and princes that condemn us and throw us into prison. We're going to take that path. But if you're not interested in that path, I'll meet you in heaven. You go the other way, we'll go our way, and we'll all get there at the same time. Is that utter foolishness? And that is exactly what those people are saying when they say, you don't have to be a disciple to be a Christian. All you have to do is say, well, yeah, I believe, and never have any evidence of any fruit in your life at all. Now, the counter to that is they come back and say, oh, what you're doing is that you are adding works to the gospel. We're not adding works to the gospel at all. We're simply saying what First John says, and what Paul said, if you are going to believe in Christ and what Jesus said, if you're, going to, if you're a truly believer in him, this is what you do. This is what happens to you. You get changed. Your heart gets changed. You surrender to Christ. You surrender to his lordship, and you follow him. Jesus is never going to say, you can be saved, you can be a Christian, but don't ever worry about following me. And those people believe that what you can do is that you, you might surrender to the lordship of Christ sometime in your life. You might, but then again, you may not. And if you don't, then it doesn't matter. You're still a Christian. I don't find that in the scriptures. I don't find it at all. So, here in 1 John, we have to have the counterbalance to those times when, when we know that we failed God, and he gives us the counterbalance. It's the evidence that we find in the, fr- the, the fruit of our lives. Now, you take a person that says, well, you can be a follower, but you don't have to be a disciple. Um, I, I mean, you can be a Christian without being a follower, without being a disciple. Then where is he ever going to find any assurance that he was ever saved? How would you ever know it? How, how could you know? You can't. And that's why John says that true Christians will have the evidence of it. Paul says you'll have the fruits of the Spirit. It always happens. It has to happen that way. Or salvation in Christ means nothing off. If you're not changed, then what did he do for you? Well, okay, I used up enough time, so we'll, we'll, we'll wind it down right there. Verse number, 20, verse number 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we're able to spend in your word tonight and lord we're just so thankful that you opened up this text to us and give us the time to study it and really research this and really look into it and here we find the confidence that we know you as lord and savior and there's no greater feeling than to know that you are christian to know that you're saved you're on the way to heaven and i pray lord that everybody in the room tonight would have that very same confidence looking back at the fruits of their lives and though we do fall in sin, into sin, we know, Lord, you always forgive. We come back, we repent. You always take us back because we're your children. And we thank you for that. Bless us tonight as we go our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.